many of you know, before I was in ministry, I had another job. I worked for um, uh, Chick-fil-A in the corporate office in Atlanta, and my role was to travel to some of the restaurants that were in my territories and make sure that the food was right. Tough job there. Um, but it was obviously more than that, you know, to help them with resources and give them coaching, et cetera, that kind of thing. But I spent a lot of time on the road, and, and it's probably the wrong way to say it. I spent a lot of time in the air. I didn't have the Atlanta market. I had to fly wherever I was um, going to be traveling. And I'm the kind of guy that when I'm on an airplane, I just want to kind of be in my own shell, you know. Forgive me for that. Uh, some of you are like, you should be witnessing on the airplane. And I'm sure I in some ways should. But I like to read. Sometimes I'm spending time with God. Sometimes I'm just reading things that I'm interested in, catching up on whatever. And typically, you know, I'm on an airplane. I'm going to be reading a a business book, a ministry book, um, a magazine of some kind. But this one particular flight, I found myself in a novel, which I, d I don't read enough novels. And, but I was in this time. And there, I got to a scene in this novel. It was a beautifully written story. And it was about a father and a daughter. It was very close to my heart as a dad of three daughters. And this is a very um, touching scene to me. And I found myself starting to feel something well up in me as I'm reading now. You know, paint the picture, I'm sitting in one of those two-seat rows, and I've got a guy right here, uh, and I'm kind of up against the window. And I thought, well, I'll just sort of turn toward the window, and, you know, he won't notice. And It's like, you know, you don't want to express your emotion because someone's around, and they might think you're weird. This is going through my head. And I kept reading. I should have stopped, but I kept reading. And the more I read, like, the scene got more and more, like, deep and hard and touching and beautiful and moving. And all of a sudden, I found my, just, it was just tears flowing up, welling up. And then they started coming out, and then I started heaving. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought, maybe this guy doesn't notice, and maybe no one else will notice. And I was kind of, like, trying to melt into the window that I was sitting next to. And then at the worst possible time, right, and all this was happening, the flight attendant came with the drinks the drink cart. And I, hear, I heard her say, sir, sir. And I'm like, I'm not going to turn, you know, because my face is all streaked with tears and my eyes are welled up. And finally, she was insistent, you know, sir. And so I turned, you know, and she kind of had this look on her face and she just said, would you like a drink? And I said, no. And I turned back around. And I felt so embarrassed, and I felt just, just a wreck. And I thought about that later, and I thought, you know, I was doing the same thing that I do every other time I'm on an airplane, reading words on a page, black ink on a white page. It never moves me like that when I'm reading a business article or a ministry book. But there was something about the power of the way that those words were arranged in that particular sequence that reached past my thoughts, even my choices, down into my deepest desires and the emotions that are connected to those desires. You see, words on a page have the power to stir the whole heart. And so two weeks ago, as we're walking through this last series called uh, word-centered, I said something along these lines. I said, God's word impacts the whole heart, and so therefore we must engage it with our whole hearts. And so I've been thinking about that moment for me on the airplane, and I've been thinking about how that novel that I was reading, that story, there's something about those words that, that kind of got me down. When, when was the last time that that happened to me as I was reading God's word? And some of you might be thinking, well, that's not fair, you know, because the Bible's one thing and a novel about your daughters and, you know, it's a whole other thing. But, but listen, 
God's word is meant to stir the whole heart. And there are times to geek out on the theology. And then there are times to weep or laugh or have joy or take action. All of it, the whole spectrum of human emotion is represented here. Now, I say all this to say we're coming to a part of the Bible, the book of Psalms, that maybe more than any other is written for the explicit purpose of engaging all of us, engaging the whole heart. Our thoughts Yes, we're going to learn a lot about God and some good theology in this series. Our choices, absolutely. There's always going to be a so what and what do we do now in application, 100%. But this is poetry. This is song. This is emotional language that taps into the deepest desires of our heart. So we're going to be engaging our desires and our emotions in this series as well. So this is a great extension from the last series. The last series I said, well, how are we going to engage God's word with our whole hearts? Psalms is going to be the tool that we're going to use to help us to do that. Now, at its core, the Psalms are prayers. You might think, well, aren't they songs? That's why they're called Psalms. Songs. They became songs. Most of these were set to music, and they became the songbook or the hymn book of the Hebrew people. But at their core, they're prayers. They're expressions between humans and God that engage the whole heart. That's how I'm going to invite you to think about the Psalms. Conversations, expressions between humans and God that engage the whole heart. Here's what's even more beautiful. Because the word of God is inspired by the spirit, breathed out by God, as we talked about last week. If you were here for the part two of that series last week with Rubel Shelley, you know that because, the God, because God's word is breathed out by the spirit and the Psalms are a part of God's word, that not only are they wholehearted conversation between humans praying to God, but in a sense... It's wholehearted conversation between God and humans. Isn't that interesting? That'll change the way you think about the Psalms. What is it in the heart of God that is being express, expressed through the Spirit written through these human authors that we need to engage? Very, very interesting way to think about it. So here's our prayer. Here's our thought as we walk through the next eight or nine weeks throughout the summer is that the wholehearted expressions in these prayers put to music in ancient times would once again come alive for us and would give us wholehearted expressions that we would engage God with our whole hearts as we learn and as we feel and as we choose. So this morning, I want to take on two tasks, uh, which they tell you in preaching class, you only should have one goal, one objective per sermon. So I'm going to break that rule today. I want to both overview the book and I want to dig into Psalm 1. Those are my two tasks this morning. Now, the overview of the book is going to be really quick. It's not going to be nearly as much as I would like to do, but I just want to use this time to give you a couple of keys, two keys, to help you understand this book a little bit better. Because it, it is a little bit, it, it's, it's very different to engage the Psalms than it was James. Or some of the other, say, some of the narratives, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or even the Old Testament narrative. It's, it's a story. You're following this, then this, then this. The Psalms are going to come at you from a different angle. And you got to know what to look for in order to understand them and in order to engage them. So I want to give you two quick thoughts on how to engage the Psalms. The first is you have to understand parallelism, Hebrew parallelism. Now, you know, um, Poetry in our modern vernacular, like most people are like, hey, tell me some poetry. You know, you're going to say roses are red, violets are blue, something, something, so are you. Like you're going to go to a rhyme. When you think of poetry, we think of rhyming. Not in the Hebrew context. They didn't write poems that rhymed. They used what we call parallelism. What is parallelism? Well, it's simply the intentional arrangement 
of two or more poetic lines so that the lines interact together in various ways around a single idea. And I know that definition might not make a lot of sense without an example. So let me show you an example. Here's an example from Psalm 19. Let's look at the first two lines of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Okay, well, you're thinking, oh, how is that? That's just a sentence. How is that poetry? But look how the lines are arranged. And this is intentional, the way the Hebrews would do this. They're, they're aligned in a way that's parallel. So they're saying the same thing two different ways. The heavens, and look at the, the line below, the sky. Declare, look below, proclaims. Glory of God, his handiwork. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky proclaims his handiwork. It's almost like an echo. It's like you hear a line and it echoes back in different words. Another way I like to think about it is almost like musicians that are playing around with the same melody line. So, you know, I play trumpet, don't, don't as much anymore, but I used to, and I would play jazz, and sometimes, you know, the trumpet would have a little melody line that he would play, you know, do-do-do-do-do-do, and then the saxophone would repeat the same thing, and they're interacting, do-do-do-do-do-do. But it comes out differently because it's a different tone. It's a different instrument. So that's oftentimes what's happening in this. Another example is in line two. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So it's like even in the day, even at night, the daytime's pouring out speech. The nighttime's revealing knowledge. One's day, one's night, but they're both doing the same thing. So it's the same idea being said two different ways. Scholars call this synonymous parallelism. You know, and the Hebrew people would have been like, What's that? You know, they're just writing these poetic devices. I don't know that they labeled them and categorized them, but we have, you know, we've categorized them. Synonymous comes from the root word synonym. So there's two lines saying the same thing in different ways, synonymous parallelism. Sometimes they're going to say the opposite. Let's put up verse six of Psalm one. This is our, this is our text from today. The very last verse for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, let's line it up again. The Lord, uh, th this time you have to kind of like flip the word order a little bit. So you've got the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way, which comes at the end of the four, of the wicked, parallel to the righteous, will perish. So contrasting intimate spiritual knowledge, the Lord knows, with something that disappears, that God will not hold forever. So you see, this is opposite. We call this antithetical parallelism. It's a contrast. So in this case, the trumpet goes, do 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 and the sax saxophone goes, do 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 And it's different. It's a contrast. Now, there are a lot of other kinds of parallelism, and we're not going to spend any more time on this this morning, but I, but I want you to look for the interaction of these poetic lines as we walk through the Psalms. You'll see it all over. There's synonymous, there's antithetical, there's all kinds of different kinds. Sometimes they interact in various ways. You'll see some beautiful examples from our psalm this morning of parallelism. So think about that. How do the lines interact together? Maybe think about them like music or like echoes coming back in various ways. And that'll help you understand what kind of genre you're dealing with here in this poetry. The second thing I want you to look for as we work through the Psalms, this is a whole lot more familiar to us. Imagery. Metaphor. Similes. Comparisons are all throughout the Psalms. Um, fill in the blank. Psalm 23. The Lord is my... Yes! I like that. You like nailed it. Like, way to go. So, shepherd. Now, that's the most famous psalm. Probably more people in the world are familiar with that psalm than any others. Some of you have the whole thing memorized. The whole psalm is a metaphor. The whole psalm is saying, you know, it starts off, the Lord is my shepherd, and then everything that comes out after it is, and, and imagine what it, what, it, what it would be like to be a sheep with God as your shepherd. 
and it invites you in. See, metaphors invite you in because I've walked through some valleys of the shadow of death. I've needed a, a table set before me in the presence of my enemies. I've needed, you see, you see, it invites you in. Your story intersects with this, and metaphors are a powerful way of doing it. Another example, Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. He could have just said, I long for God. But he says, as a thirsty deer about to die in the desert apart from a drink of water, eagerly moves toward that water. That's how my soul moves to you. As we walk through these psalms this summer, you'll see storms, trees, rocks, tents, horns, lions, stars, fruit, everything used to point out attributes of God or describe aspects of our relationship with him. Allow these metaphors, these images, to draw you in. Make connections with them. Today, we're going to interact around a tree planted by water. Like, what would it be like to be a tree? Am I a tree or am I something else? Let it st- something else. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, let these metaphors stir in you. Think about them, yes, and then imagine them, because that's surely what the authors are intending us to do. So those are two things to pay attention to as we walk through the book, the parallel lines and the imagery, the metaphors you'll find throughout. As we read and interact with these prayers over the next couple of months, the invitation is for us to enter a deeper relationship with our God, to join the prayers of the ancient people with our own prayers today, to spring up in us songs that pick up where these ancient songs left off and to stir within us wholehearted language that gives us expression to our walk with God today. Because surely we are also the people of God, just as David was, just as the sons of Korah were, just as Asaph was. These are some of the other authors of the Psalms. With that in mind, now let's engage together this first of the 150 Psalms, Psalm 1. By the way, we're not going to do 150, okay? One psalm per week during the summer, so we're going to be jumping around. Psalm 1, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Here's how we're going to get after kind of an outline of the psalm. Three key words, two contrasting images, one eternal outcome. That's what we'll see as we walk through it. So let's start at the top, our three key words. Our very first word is the first word of the psalm, blessed. Blessed, that's a key word of this psalm. Uh, You might pronounce it blessed. That's fine as well. It can go either way. Now, in our day, this word has lost all substance. It's kind of just become uh, almost a meaningless spiritual word. So you might hear someone at um, Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A say, have a blessed day. 
And uh, your response to that is sort of like, well, you know, you have a blessed day too because you know what that means. It means have a nice day but using Christian code. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like have a blessed day, wink, wink, you know. And then if you know the code, you're like, have a blessed day, wink, wink. And I don't know what you do if you don't know the code. But um, I'm not knocking that. But, but I want to say that that's not what the psalmist had in mind. The word blessed in Hebrew means happy. But, but even happy has lost a lot of its power in the English language, and it's become just sort of a throwaway word. So let me give you some other words that, that, it, could, that it could just as easily be translated. Joyful. Full. Abundant. Fully alive. You see, blessed in the Hebrew, the, the word that's translated blessed is, is the word for what every human being most longs for. It is the life you really want. Whether you're a follower of God or not, you, you want the full life. It's what drives every decision you make from where you're going to eat lunch today to who you're going to marry to the career you choose, where you move, how you interact with your grandkids, what kind of legacy you want to leave. It all is you're chasing your idea of the full life, the blessed life, the joyful life, the contented life, the happy life. You fill in the blank. Now, so what the psalmist is saying, on the, you, got, you got to get this. It's not just religious language. It's just like, do you want to live? Do you want to be fully alive? Blessed is the man, dot, dot, dot. And you're like, here it is. This is the key. And by the way, that's the whole point. That's why it's the first of all the 150 psalms. It's in pay attention to not just this psalm, but everything that comes after. Now, interestingly, before he gives you the positive what do you do to become the blessed person? He's going to first give you the negative. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Look at those bottom three lines and notice the parallelism. This is really interesting. Do you see how the verbs line up? Walks, stands, sits. Do you see how the prepositional phrases line up? In the counsel, in the way, in the seat. And then the, the, the modifier of the wicked, of sinners, of scoffers. Now, you might say that's synonymous parallelism. That may be true, but there's another way to look at it. There's a progression. There is a deepening of the posture of the individual. It's clearest to see in the verbs. Walks, stands, sits. That's a picture of someone getting stuck. Someone's walking along on the wrong path with the wrong people. Pretty soon they say, hmm, it's pretty comfortable. I'm going to stand and talk for a little while. After a while I say, you know, I'm a little tired. I think I'm going to sit. Interestingly, all of the scientific studies are showing sitting is one of the worst things for us. You know, I say this as you're all sitting. But, you know, <laughs> literally, if you sat for the rest of your life, you'd die. You die. You have to stay walking. So here's the picture, a progression of someone getting stuck. You know, and look at the next one. It's, at first, it's just in the council. You know, they're just, you're just associating with them a little bit. Next is in the way. It's like now you're doing the same things they are. And finally, it's in the seat. Like this is where your rear end is planted. You are now one of them. You are now one of the scoffers that would look at everyone else on the other path, the righteous path, and say, ha! You guys are so uncomfortable over there trying to follow God. Now, when you understand this 
picture of someone starting out walking and then standing and then sitting, uh, you can realize this is where people naturally go. This is where you will go when your life's on autopilot. This is the progression you will follow without even trying. This is how you get stuck in life and end up with no life at all. They're saying this is not the path to life, not the life you really want. So then he's going to go on and give the contrast in verse 2. Thank, thank God. So let's go back to blessed is the man. Not all that stuff, but, but this. Let's look at verse 2. But, and there's the contrasting word, beautiful word in this context. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let's pause with that phrase. We'll come back to the second phrase in a minute. You can just leave that verse on the screen. The second key word, so first key word, blessed. Second key word, delight. What a powerful word speaks to the desires of your heart, speaks to what you really want deep down. Um, Father's Day, you know, my, my mind is going to my children, my mind is going to my own father, and it stirs desire in me. It stirs delight. Think about a parent delighting in a child. Think about a, a sports fan delighting, you know, to watch their favorite team. You know, I can do some of that too. Um, maybe think about a teenager delighting in a, a new relationship, a, a, a crush, you know, someone that they've, they've met and they're all goo-goo and gaga. There's delight, right? We all delight in things. We were made to delight in things. Isn't it beautiful that God made us to delight? What would life be without delight? I hope to be delighting in some Mexican food in about 45 minutes or so. Now, unfortunately, we don't usually associate our delight with the law of the Lord, if we're honest, we don't usually associate that. And in fact, it's weird to think about delighting in law of any kind. I, we don't delight in law. Maybe we obey law. Maybe we respect law, but we don't delight in law. Is the purpose of law to be delighted in? Interesting question. Takes us back to what we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about, you know, we are to not only learn God's word and live God's word, but also love God's word. That's what it looks like to find wholehearted life in, in the word of God. Lo, uh, learn God's word, live God's word, love God's word. We made this statement, you will never love God's word until you find in it God's presence with you and God's activity in you. So your heart doesn't long for a text. It longs for a relationship with your creator. But your creator has expressed himself through a text. So think about anyone you love and care for. When you get a letter from them, you get communication from them, that's a lot different than other kinds of communication, you see. And so when you dig into God's word, this is kind of review of, of two weeks ago, you're going to find the presence of God being expressed through the text, and you're going to find the work of God being done in you through the text, God's presence, God's activity in the word of God. Another way to think about this is you will delight in the law of the Lord to the extent that you delight in the Lord himself. Now, we'll come back to this idea of delight in a minute, but I want to move on to the third key word for now. So we've got blessed, number one, delight, number two, and then meditate, number three. On his law, he meditates day and night. Interestingly, this is the only active verb that describes the man. So, so what he loves is the law of the Lord. What he does is meditates. In the Hebrew, it's the only active verb. There's a connection between delight and meditate. When you delight in something you don't have to work on meditating on it. 
you just think about it. Like some of you, like I, you know, I mentioned the Mexican food, and now you're just like thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? You know. Um, in middle school, I mentioned like when you get a letter or note from someone you care about. I remember in high school for me, this one girl I had a crush on, and you know, this is the ancient text messages were notes. Okay, and, and uh, we used to write past notes back and forth. Um, and, you know, I really liked this girl. And so there was something about getting a note from her that, you know, boy, you, you didn't just read it one time and throw it away, did you? You know, you, you would read it and you fold it up carefully, put it in your pocket. And then when no one was around later, pull it back out and read it again, read it again. And then you, you, you fold it back up and then you find a special place somewhere in your house. You know, I had a shoebox. You know, you put it in the shoebox, and you pull it out later, and you read it again, and you get another note later, and now you got two notes in the shoebox, and then you hide the shoebox from your brothers and sisters and parents, you know, because you don't want anyone else to see it. And then uh, hopefully before you get married, you throw the shoebox away. <laughs> A word to the wise, all right? If you haven't gotten married yet, maybe you are married. Go throw the shoebox away. Come on. Now, here's the principle. Whatever you delight in, you'll meditate on. You'll think about it. Your mind will go there because you delight in it. And your meditations name the priorities of your life. So what do you meditate on day and night? Yeah. A lot of us meditate on our kids. Man, when they're doing well, life's good. When they're struggling... Maybe a husband or wife. For some of you, it's your work. It's your job. It's your dreams. It's your career. It's what you don't have that you wish you did have. It's, it's politics. It's sports. It's social media. What, what, what do you meditate on? And, and I'm not saying there's no room for anything else other than God, but how often when your mind is on autopilot, does it go to your creator? Does it go to your savior, Jesus Christ? Does it go to your relationship with him? Does it go to his word, his living, alive, active word? You see, what you meditate on day and night is what has your heart. The psalmist is saying, the person who has the fullest life is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. In other words, delights in God himself and in God's self-revelation. The psalmist delighted in God's word because it was the greatest thing he knew. He saw it as the instruction manual for life and his connection to his creator. Here's another way to think about it. In life, there are a billion ways you can shrivel, but only one way you can flourish. And it's in your connection to your creator, his desire for you, expressed in his words, written on a page by the Holy Spirit. Three key words, blessed, delight, meditate. Now two contrasting images. The first is in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. You see the, some parallelism there and then a summary statement at the end of the verse. And all that he does, he prospers. The tree is such an important metaphor not just in Psalm 1, but it's used all throughout. I mean, what, what, what was in the garden that Adam and Eve, you know, they longed after the fruit of the tree. You know, there's a tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In, in the new creation, there's going to be a tree. It's going to be planted by a river. And all throughout, there's 
tree metaphors. Um, it's the centerpiece of this psalm. In some ways, it's the centerpiece of the whole book of Psalms. In some ways, it's the centerpiece of the scripture. I'll talk more about that. But I want you to see an image of a tree, a literal picture of a tree. We'll put this on a screen. Um, and I want you to, to stare at this while I give some reflections on this metaphor. Notice that the tree is planted right beside some water. We know that water is the key to all life. Without water, there is no life. Now, what is the water representative, representative of in this metaphor? Well, it's, it's the word of God, the law of God, which connects someone to God himself. So a tree planted right beside living water is a tree planted with continual access to its life source. I mean, it's, it's, that tree's not, I mean, it's not going to shrivel up and die no matter if it rains or not. It's got continual access to the life source, you see. And, and in that same way, here's the idea of this metaphor, life flourishes in connection to God himself. And so some of you, you said, not been connected to God hardly at all. And like, you, you can feel it. You, you feel a little bit of shriveling, a little bit of dryness in you. Now, life flourishes in connection to God himself. Connection to God comes largely through his word. Not exclusively, but largely. You know, there, there's a lot of other ways you can commune with God, but I don't want you to miss the way you commune with God through the spirit, or through the word. The spirit that wrote the words now lives in you. The spirit that breathed out the words through the human authors now is in you, breathing life in you through his word. And you're able to engage conversation through the spirit. The author of the text is with you and in you and will help you breathe life in you through the word of God when you meditate on it. That's the idea of this metaphor here. So you see that the picture of the tree, like this whole psalm is not painting a picture of just some religious dude like a monk you know, delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on the Lord, God's law day and night. That's kind of a monkish way to look at it. No, he's saying it's a tree. This is the life you really want. Full bloom, full growth, green, flourishing, long-lasting and alive. Now, go back to the verse, this little summary phrase, and all he does prospers. Don't read into that a theology of material prosperity. It doesn't need to mean that. It, it rather describes a human being living out his or her full potential. Leaving behind a trail of life and wholeness that touches everyone he or she comes in contact with. People, organizations, families, friendships, even businesses are more full of life because this person was there. That's the idea of this metaphor. Now, let's connect the dots of the progression. What you delight in, you will meditate on. What you meditate on names the priorities of your life, and the priorities of your life will determine the fullness of life you experience and the amount of life you have to give away. That's what this psalm is saying. If you delight in the law of the Lord, you'll become a tree. Do you want to be a tree? I can't study this psalm without going to the, one of my favorite children's books, The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. You know, many of you are familiar with this. And, and the tree gives and gives, and the boy takes and takes. But the, the end of every phrase is, and the tree was happy. We were made to be trees. 
life-giving, bearing fruit for others, shade for some, fruit for some, beauty for some. We were made to be trees. Now, the contrasting image. The wicked are not so, verse 4, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, it's interesting. In our context, we have to explain chaff, and I will. But in their context, chaff was like, yeah, everybody knows what that is. I mean, the, the, the best metaphor would probably be like when you mow your lawn and the little the lawn clippings that you either bag up and put in the trash can or you just leave hope, hoping the wind to carry them away. It's like the worthless parts. I don't need you anymore. Now, in the original context, you know, you, you had to have bread, you know, water and, and sustenance. So you had to have bread. And uh, cultures through all time have been making bread. And here's how ancient cultures would do it. They would pick the wheat, and then they had to separate out the, the, the good part of the wheat, the, the, the grain itself that w- would be heavier, from the other stuff, the stalks and the husks and these kinds of things. So they would lay it all out on the threshing floor, and they would get animals to walk all around the threshing floor, and it would push it down, and it would disintegrate, and it would separate out. And then they would take the whole mixture, and they would throw it up in the air, and even just the slightest breeze would blow away all the chaff, all the worthless light stuff, and then all the good heavier stuff would fall to the ground, and they could scoop that up. And they could go crush it and make it into flour and make it into bread. Now, I've got some chaff with me down here in this little pouch, and I want to show it to you. I used to think it was just the husks. It's actually the stalks and the husks and everything that would be left over from stalks of, uh, of, of wheat. So, so here's some chaff. You can't really see it. It's, I can tell you it's just incredibly light you know, in my fingers here. Now, let's put up the metaphor, that not rather the picture of the tree. Thank you. This is Psalm 1, men and women. Are you becoming more like a tree or more like the chaff? Okay, do you see how this has the power not just to engage your mind, but kind of stir something? Which one do you want to be? Which one do you think you're becoming? Because this one's got life to it, and it's giving life. This one, well, it comes and goes. In fact, which one are you becoming? the tree, the chaff. So three key words, two contrasting metaphors. Now one eternal outcome. The last two verses say this. Therefore, you know, do you hear the the conclusion coming? It's like in light of all that, here it is. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, they're going to blow away just like that chaff did. There's nothing of substance there. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the end destination for two divergent paths. On the one hand, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's not just intellectual knowledge. You know, in biblical language, this is relational intimacy. He knows you, and he knows your way, your path, your life, your walk. He is deeply intimate with you. But in contrast, the way of the wicked will perish. I can't say this any better than the great preacher, British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Let me read what he wrote about this phrase. Not only shall they perish themselves, but their way shall perish too. The righteous carves his name upon the rock, but the wicked writes his remembrance in the sand. The righteous man plows the furrows of the earth, 
and sows a harvest here which shall never be fully reaped till he enters eternity. But as for the wicked, he plows the sea. And though there may seem to be a shining trail behind his keel, yet the waves shall pass over it, and the place that knew him shall know him no more forever. So here's the big idea of Psalm 1. The truly good life, a life of flourishing and fullness, is found in becoming a person nourished and sustained by God's word. Delight in it. Meditate on it. And you will find life through it. That's the idea of Psalm 1. Now the question, how do we respond to this? How do we engage this? What's the so what? And so I want to spend just a few more minutes on this. Uh, I want to give you something to believe and something to do. It's two thoughts in our so what. Something to believe and something to do. Now let's start with the something to believe. We have a problem because if the words of Psalm 1 are true, and we believe that they are true, then the problem is we don't tend to delight in the law of the Lord. Can we be honest about that? You know, one of our values here is being courageously real, and I want to be courageously real with you. I don't sit around constantly in my mind on autopilot, like God's word, you know, the word of the Lord. And, you know, in occasions of my life, my brain goes there, but I, I don't frequently and fervently delight in God's word. I'm learning to, I'm longing to, but I have a long way to go. And I suspect many of you in the room would be similarly. Our delights rarely in the law of the Lord, probably, if we're honest. We delight in things much more base. We don't often even obey God's word, much less delight in it. I suspect more of us probably feel like dried out husks than mighty trees beside streams. So in light of that problem, what are we to do? On the one hand, say, well, I better start delighting. I'm just going to like do it. I'm going to like get every ounce of discipline in me and wake up an hour and a half earlier and start meditating on the word of the Lord. I want to first give you something to believe before you can do anything. Here is something to believe. In the fullness of time, God himself came to earth as a man who fulfilled Psalm 1 perfectly. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it, to embody it. The word made flesh. Why did he do that? Because you and I couldn't. Jesus was the man who fully delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. He was the true tree planted by streams of water. What it means to be a Christian is to put your trust in that man and be grafted into the tree. Jesus uses this exact same idea when he says in John 15 to his disciples, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you stay with me, if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. But you can't, apart from me, do anything. You can't bear any fruit on your own. It doesn't matter how much you study God's word. Apart from Jesus Christ, we learn this in the fullness of God's revelation. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from being in him, apart from remaining in him, abiding in him, there is no fruit in you. There is no life in you. This is wholehearted life in Jesus. Becoming a fully flourishing man or woman, being remade into the image of Christ because you're grafted into his tree. You're now a part of him. You're a branch from the tree. And so when we say helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus, please know that there's no wholehearted life 
without Jesus. And can I just say, you can go to Barnes & Noble today and you can find all kinds of books about wholehearted life. You know, some are gonna use those exact words, some are gonna use other words. It's like, here's what life is, here's how you find it, here's what you're going after, here's what your relationships need, here's what your physical fitness needs, here's what everything in life needs. There is no fullness of life apart from Jesus. Because you're not, you're not a branch grafted into the tree. Now, Here's something to believe. Jesus is the true tree planted by streams of water. Through faith in him, you and I are branches on the tree, abiding in him. You don't have to have super mega awesome religious works. You just have to have faith. Jesus, take me as I am. I believe in you. I confess my sins to you. Graft me into your tree so that life can flow through me. That's something to believe now. From that place of faith, you can then turn the flip side of the faith works coin and let some works flow out. You see how this works? And I want to give you one thing to do. So one thing to believe, now one thing to do, meditate on God's word. Okay, you know, just because Jesus is the true tree, not us, doesn't mean that we're not called to meditate on God's word. In fact, isn't this what Jesus was saying in John 15? Abide with me. Interestingly, a little later on that, that passage, it says, if you abide with me and my words abide with you, he's connecting staying with Jesus to, to staying with his word. Isn't that interesting? Now, how do we meditate on God's word? I want to give you one quick tool, and then I really have to wrap up. All it means to meditate is, is read a section of scripture and then think about it. Engage it. Consider it. Contemplate it. Interact with it. Allow the words to stir up things in you. Don't shut down the desires of your heart. And then you talk to God about it all. That's what it is to meditate on the word of God. I want to give you this tool, five questions, and you know, the, the, different learning styles out there. This is not for all of you, but it's for some of you. I'm going to put these on the screen. We'll leave them up for a couple of minutes. You can write them down. You can take pictures. You can do whatever you want, or you can ignore them. That's fine. But I've found these questions to be so helpful to help me go beyond just learning God's word to actually meditating on God's word. Let me just read these questions out loud. What is God saying to me through his word today? You see how that's a little different than just what does his word mean? You have to start with what does it mean, but then it's what is he saying to me through that? Am I taking this seriously? Boy, that's, that's worth the price of admission, just that one question, I think. If I believed and held to this, how would that change things? What desires or deep longings does this text make me aware of? What might God's invitation be to me in this place? Now, you can use different questions. I didn't even write these. You know, I stole them from other people. Um, you, you might have one question, two questions, ten questions. But if, if you're not engaging God's word, if, if you're just kind of reading it and closing the Bible and being like, okay, next thing on my to-do list, um, you're reading it, and that's great, but you're not meditating on it. You're not planting yourself by stream of water. And, of course, you do this by the Spirit. You do this in connection to Jesus. It all flows together. You know, this is not a legalistic work, but this is an opportunity for you to meditate on God's word. Our Father, would you speak to us through your word as we meditate on it to your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.